church, it's good to be back with you guys. Um, had about a month uh, since I've preached, and so it's been, I'm so, so happy to be back and open the Word of God with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open back up to the book of 1 Peter. To the book of 1 Peter. I would blow my nose, but that would be disgusting, so I'm just going to sniffle a lot. Um, uh, trying to rein it in here. That worship was incredible. Um, we're back in the book of 1 Peter, and if you're new, I normally don't cr- cry every time, but if you're new, um, my name is Tyler, I'm a downtown pastor, and we're actually back in the letter of 1 Peter, and we've been in 1 Peter for some time, and just to remind you, I want to just remind you why we're in 1 Peter, we're in 1 Peter because we wanted to study what would God say to a church and to churches in that point in time who were going through persecution, going through suffering, and these were churches who didn't have political power and they didn't have social clout to fight back with. And, they, and what we see in this letter is God speaking through the words of Peter to teach us how indestructible our hope is and our confidence is and our assurance is because of what God has done in Christ. That there's this incredible thing that the life of Jesus in his people is able to transcend every single obstacle and barrier. And today we're going to see a similar theme that we've seen before, that you have to remember that belief in and faithfulness to Jesus will bring trials into your life. That belief in and faithfulness to Jesus will bring trials into your life. That contrary to popular belief and teaching, we will, we Christians, we will suffer in a variety of ways precisely because we trust in and are faithful to God and his word. That you and I will specifically suffer in ways that we wouldn't otherwise if we didn't know him and if we weren't faithful to him and his word. And specifically, Peter has in mind today for us that we will be insulted for the name of Jesus. That we will be insulted, we will be mocked and ridiculed and reviled and misunderstood for trusting in and aligning with God's word by the world around us. Let's read the text together, 1 Peter 4, verse 12 through 14. This is the word of God. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter tells us that instead of being surprised by insults, that we should rejoice because we are sharing in the blessing, in the blessing of sharing in the ridicule and then in the glory of Jesus himself. And not just insults in general, but those insults that you will receive because of your faithfulness to Jesus. Faithfulness to his word and his testimony over the word and the testimony of the world around us. And when when this happens, he says, don't be surprised, don't fear, and don't fight, but rejoice. Now, this is such a timely truth for us, right? It's a timely truth given how Christians are responding to the criticisms of our culture towards Christians and the church. Now, to be very clear, it's important to understand that 
we're not the first and we will not be the last Christians who are looked down upon by the world around them. And this is, um, this is actually around the world and historically for Christians, this is the most common experience for them. Around the world globally and historically, look at the t- history of the church, most Christians have felt maligned and reviled by the world around them. And our situation is unique only because of our context. And every generation, every context is unique because of its story. But we have to be sober-minded if we think the difficulties we're facing are somehow the worst ever. That somehow the things that we face are even worse than anyone else has ever faced before. It's actually quite ordinary to most Christians in the globe and historically. And the church has and always will, by the power of the risen Jesus, overcome and weather every single storm and insults. You have to know that. You shouldn't fear. And that's why Peter says, don't be surprised. Verse 12, uh, beloved, do not be surprised. And he says, as though something strange were happening to you. As though something strange were happening to you. He's saying that because our tendency is to think something strange is happening when we get insulted. Like for the name of Jesus, we, we really think, well, this shouldn't happen. Something must be wrong. Something must be wrong in them or in me that if I were more faithful to God or God were more faithful to me or to us, these sort of things wouldn't happen. See, our surprise is rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus and who he is. The reason you're surprised when you're insulted for aligning with Jesus is because you have fundamentally misunderstood what does it mean to follow him. Because here's the thing, deep down, right now I think, deep down in us, we believe that if we just got Jesus right and represented him faithfully, we would always be accepted and always be honored by the world. I think deep down some of us really believe that because there's this pervasive notion that if the church ever lacks relevancy and ever lacks influence, it's because somewhere along the way we lost who Jesus was and the church is always the issue. That Jesus is never the problem with the world, it's always the church. That if we got Jesus right, we'd always be accepted. Now listen to me very clearly, much could and should be said about the failings of Christians in the church to represent Jesus faithfully. All of us know and all of us have experienced ways that the church and Christians alike have misrepresented who Jesus is, sometimes in minor ways and other times in awful and horrific ways. And that can't be overstated. It can't be overstated. Yet, yet for all of our errors in misrepresenting who Jesus is, for all of our errors, for all of our mistakes, there will be times, there will be times that getting him right, getting him right and representing him faithfully will mean mistreatment. It will mean insults. The reason sometimes you will lack influence with people is because you got him right. You have to know that. And actually, actually, if our faithfulness to Jesus in this world never brings an insult our way, then it's safe to say, it's safe to say we haven't been faithful to him. If our faithfulness to Jesus never, and I mean never, brings an insult our way, then it's safe to say we've probably never been faithful to him. Because when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, like when you read them, like it is intellectually dishonest to say Jesus is not offensive to people. 
Like if you read the gospel accounts of his life and ministry, at some point he offends everybody. At some point, everyone has something negative to say to him or about him. At some point, because he challenges everyone. That he refuses to bend to our theology and our moral norms and our values. And one of the most stark examples of this is in John 6. In John 6, Jesus is at the height of his popularity in ministry. The crowds that are following him are swelling into the thousands of people. And these people, listen, people who are following him, they've seen miracles. They haven't just heard about miracles. They've seen with their own eyes miracles. They've seen his care and concern for them. They've seen his mercy. They've seen his power. They've seen his love. They are absolutely in awe of who Jesus is. So much so that they, it says they want to make him their king. They saw Jesus and they said, he should be our king. And that seems pretty good, right? At first glance, this story seems to to suggest to us that if you just got Jesus right, everybody would see him clearly, see his power, see his miracles, and go, he should be king. But then Jesus begins to teach them. He begins to teach them that the point of his miracles are not to bless their life. That the point of his miracles is to bring them to him. The point of his miracles is not simply to bless them, with things and with health and wealth, it's to bring them to him. He had just fed thousands of people with a couple of fish and a loaf of bread. And he tells them, I did that not so that you'd just be physically full, I did that so you would know I'm true food for your soul. I'm true food for your soul. And then he uses this provocative language of saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have any part with me. And he uses that provocative language to offend their Jewish sensibilities. These Jewish people knew you don't eat things with blood in it. It was in the law of God. And he says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. He says it to challenge them. He says that, listen, you have to have supreme allegiance to me even when I don't work the miracle that you want. Even when I don't work the miracle you want, you have to have supreme allegiance to me. And what's incredible is that they are so offended. The crowds hear this, and they're so offended by him that they leave him. They leave. Listen, they've seen him be a miracle worker. And what he said is so offensive to their ears and to their hearts that it's not even worth sticking around. Right? Like, they don't have modern-day hospitals then. You would think they go, well, I think he's crazy, but he could heal me if I got sick, so I'll hang around him, right? But it's so offensive. His words are so offensive. It's not worth even staying around him if one of their family members got sick. They all leave. John 6, 60 says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Look at verse 16. Who heard this? Many of his disciples, people who were following him, people who were following his teaching, not just random person who didn't know who Jesus was, people who had been following him around, his disciples, they heard it and said, it's a hard saying. Who can, who can listen to it? And then verse 66, he says, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. Thousands of people, he makes a statement, and everybody leaves. 
Everybody. The only the 12 disciples are left. And listen, these aren't just the Jewish religious leaders. It's, it's really easy to say, oh, all the problems were the, those in power and those who had authority, and they're the ones who are evil. But these are just crowds of everyday people like you and me. And they hear what he says, and they all leave. And what is incredible to me is as they're leaving, Jesus does not run after them to win them back. He doesn't run after them and say, I'm sorry I was offensive. Please forgive me. Come back. He doesn't. He watches thousands of people walk away from him. And you can see how resolute he is in his word and his authority. Because the first thing he says is to the 12 that stayed, verse 67, then very next verse, here's what he says. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? See how how confident he is that he knows where life is? He looks at them and says, do you want to go? Because if it was me, let's say I preached a sermon and thousands of you left and only 12 of you were here, I would say, hey, I'm going to do better next week, I promise. Like, I, 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 would, I, would make, I would make some promises right there. Just stay with me, I promise. I'll be super funny next week and they'll come back. Like, I, I would figure out something to say. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he's so confident in his word and authority. He looks at the 12 and says, you want to go too? I don't know a man like him. Because listen, his rough edges don't need to be worn down. Like Jesus' rough edges are not born out of how our rough edges are. They're born out of insecurity and fear and sin. His are born out of truth. He has rough edges because he knows what's true and we don't. He did not come to trust and follow our word and our collective wisdom and what the world says where life is and what's true and what's beautiful. He says, no, I know what's true. I know where life is. I know what's beautiful. And I'm gonna come tell you. I'm gonna save you with my word. I'm gonna save you with my life. See, the sting of his word, you have to know this because there's gonna be times, whether it's today or later on in your life, you're gonna read the Bible and something's going to sting when you read it. Something's gonna sting when you hear it. You have to know the sting of his word does not mean there's poison in his word. It means there's poison in us. Something's not wrong with his word. Something's wrong in us. That's what the sting is. He's cleaning a wound. That's what the sting is. And he does not apologize for what he said. See, from the very beginning of his ministry, you have to know this, Jesus made it very clear to those who would follow him, to follow him in the way of his kingdom in this world is going to mean insults for you. Sermon on the Mount, his very first sermon, he's giving the new blessings of the kingdom of God, and here's what he ends it with. He says, blessed are you, blessed are you, not when you get a lot of money, not when you get health, but he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. His first sermon from out of the gates, he says, insults are coming if you follow me. That's why Peter says, don't be surprised, beloved. Why, if they insulted Jesus, they're going to insult you. That's the whole point. And I know for me, I know for me, a lot, for a lot of you, and I know for me, we, we think there's a way to communicate Jesus to people and never offend them. 
Like, like I, I love, I love getting to help people who are skeptical, who are apathetic, who are on the fence about Jesus, who don't believe in Jesus. I love getting to help them see Jesus for who he is. I love it. But something in me thinks if I could just word it rightly, I could make it to where they would never find Jesus offensive. So many of us in here, we think if we were smart enough, well-read enough, witty enough, sympathetic enough, apologetic enough, cool enough, incisive enough, that we could present Jesus in such a way that every person would go, oh, clearly he's incredible. We, we think that at least, well, maybe they won't believe in Jesus, but at least they'll think I'm super smart and respectable. They'll agree to disagree, but they'll think, wow, what an incredibly cool, funny, smart Christian. And we think the reason other Christians are ridiculed is because they're not as shrewd and as wise as we are. But here's what Jesus has consistently taught me through his word. I hope he teaches you. Listen, our job is to remove every single stumbling block that gets in the way of people seeing Jesus. Absolutely, we have to do that. But we can't edit or whitewash or take away anything or add to Jesus. We can't. The one who saves and the one who heals is the same one who offends and the same one who challenges. You can't have one without the other. Where he has spoken clearly and his word is abundantly clear, we just let him speak. And where there's confusion about what he means, we help explain to give clarity, but we don't edit. He knows where life is, and so we don't edit what he says. Now, really important point here. It's important that the insults you receive, though, are for his name and not yours. In verse 14, he says, this promise is, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, not your name, for the name of Christ you are blessed. He's talking about those comments that come because you are aligned with Jesus. It is crucial for us to think about this because we so often confuse his name for ours. That we confuse the two. Right now it is really easy. So there are some Christians who want to think there's a way to present Jesus and he'll never be offensive. And other Christians want to believe that every insult you receive is an attack on your faith. That every, every insult you receive is an attack on your faith. But some of you need to hear that the world is not mocking you because of your faith. They're mocking you because you're a jerk. They're mocking you because you're unkind and you're not thoughtful. It's not always because you've been so faithful. Using Bible verses does not justify or excuse being disrespectful or being unkind or being mean-spirited. We speak truth to people not to be right and not to crush them. We speak truth to people to serve and to love and to help them. That's why we speak truth. Just because we know the God who is without error doesn't mean that we are without error. You have got to understand this. You don't confuse all of us. Be careful. Be careful that we don't confuse our political parties, whichever, wherever you land, and our social agendas, and our personal perspective with the word of God. It's really important. Now, I'm not saying that the word of God doesn't have serious and severe implications for those things. It does, and it should have them. That the word of God should influence how you vote and how you see policy and how you think about social issues and how you think about justice issues. It, absolutely, it should. 
but you have to be able to know what has God explicitly said in his word and where are contexts. I'm taking that principle and I'm trying to apply it in a particular context and the further you get away from the word of God, you have to know the more your context, the more your personal bias, and the more your limitations are going to influence you. And you have to know that your name and my name is not nearly as valuable as the name of Jesus. There's no comparison. These are those insults we receive for the name of Christ. So what will it look like practically, honestly, what will it look like uh, practically to be insulted for the name of Jesus? Let me say something first. You don't seek out insults. You don't seek them out. And you don't seek them out for things that are superfluous. Like, you're like, I'm gonna say Merry Christmas, not Happy Holidays. Like, you don't need to seek it out. I'm sorry, sir, Merry Christmas. Like, I, 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 you're picking the wrong battles, okay? You don't seek it out. Like, there's some people who take pride in the fact of being insulted for the name of Christ. So you don't seek it out. You seek to be faithful. The command, don't be surprised, is reactive in nature. It's when it comes, okay, the command is not don't be surprised, but you're never told to go seek out insults. So what will this look like in everyday life? It'll happen in two ways. It'll be when what you believe and how you behave contradicts others. When what you believe and how you behave contradicts others. Listen, you have to know this. The world does not hate everything God's word says to believe and do. Don't, don't believe a caricature about the world around us, that they hate everything that God's word says. It'll only be an issue when what you believe and what you do contradicts them and indicts them. That's when the issue arises. So there'll be things about the word of God they love and things they hate. So, so many people will love the idea that the image of God is on every human being. And that the image of God on every human being means that every human being has worth and value and dignity. And that means that the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized have to be valued. They have the same rights and the same value as those who are rich and those who have power and those who have wealth. It's an incredible doctrine, but then people will struggle when that means, okay, if that's true though, then that means racial reconciliation. That means other races that you struggle with, that you struggle to love, they have the same value as you. And others will struggle, oh, then that means even the unborn who bear the image of God have rights as well. See, we'll love the, some people will love the idea of God's love and forgiveness for me, but they will hate it when it's offered to their enemy and rival. They'll love the idea that God has justice for the voiceless, but then will hate what he has to say about sex and how it's meant to happen in the context of a beautiful marriage covenant. Listen, the world will not hate everything God's word says. It will be when God's word takes you to places that contradicts them. And those will typically happen in your life. They shouldn't be happening unnecessarily over social media, but they will happen when you're having conversations with people, when you're seeking to talk about who Jesus is and these things come up. But the other way they'll happen probably more often for most of us, in the more subtle way, it's when you don't partake in what they do. One of the subtle ways and ways you'll receive insults is when you don't partake in what they do. See, you may not condemn someone at your workplace, or your neighborhood, or your friends. You, you don't say, you guys are wrong, you're going to hell. You, you don't even say that. You just don't join in with, on what they're doing. 
It's when you say no to going to a strip club with those people who are traveling with you on the road. It's when you say no to heavy drinking and you say no to shady business practices. You say no to cheating on exam. When you say no and they feel your lack of conformity, it's when you don't join in on that dirty joke. You don't join in on mocking another person. You don't join in on judgmental accusations and condemnation of other groups. Human beings love it when others conform to what they want, and then when you don't conform, you will feel their displeasure. Maybe you felt this. You'll feel the looks, and maybe that's when the insults come, and 1 Peter 4 tells us that's what's gonna happen. Earlier, it says, 1 Peter 4, 4, it says, with respect to this sinful behavior, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and what do they do? And they malign you. Now, Christians, it's really important you understand this. We don't join in on those behaviors not because we're better or superior to them. We don't join in not because we're better or superior. We don't join in because we have different goals and joys in life, different aims. We don't join in because we know without Jesus we are just like them. And even with Jesus, we sin in all sorts of ways. So when we say no, it's not to make them feel distance, it's because we're trying our best to follow after Jesus. And even for some of you, maybe me listing off those sins, you think, I have partaken in those things. I have failed in those ways. The most unique things about a Christian is not that we don't sin, the most unique thing is that we confess and we repent of our sin. And we get up and we strive and we go, even though I failed before, even if this group of people I have sinned in egregious ways with before, that doesn't mean I have to again. And I'm still loved by God even though I failed him in those ways and I can now get up and I can follow Jesus. And even if that makes them feel uncomfortable, I have a joy they don't know about. So we're not surprised. We're not surprised, but then you're commanded and I'm commanded to do something that's unbelievable, that when you're insulted, you would rejoice you'd rejoice. 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When we're mocked, our primary response is rejoicing, not cowering, not fearing, Not fighting and not defending, but rejoicing. Now, why in the world is that our response? And how could you possibly do that? He's gonna tell us why and how, and we'll be done. Why do we rejoice? Because when we share in the sufferings of Jesus, listen, it means you will share in the glory of Jesus. That's what he's saying. When you read the New Testament, there are two truths that the the apostles are constantly teaching people about the suffering of Jesus. Because when you think about it, these apostles are telling the world about this Jesus who rose from the dead, God incarnate, and they have to explain, well, what did his suffering mean? Why why did God come to suffer? And there's two truths that they keep teaching again and again and again. The first truth is that he died for our sins. He suffered for our sins. And secondly, he suffered for our example. He suffered for our sins and he suffered for our example. See, we talk most about him suffering for our sins and for good reason. He suffered in our place. It is unbelievable to think about the fact that God came to know our pain and know our shame and know our sin 
and suffer in all the ways we deserve. We should talk about it. We can never move past it. But the other less talked about truth about the suffering of Jesus is that if you want to share in his resurrection and his glory, you have to share in his humiliation and his sufferings now. If you want to share in future glory with him, you must share in his sufferings now. That just like Jesus, following God will bring mocking and shame to you from the world around you, but it will bring glory and honor from God the Father to you. When you share in his sufferings, listen, you're not adding to his work. He doesn't mean you share in his suffering, like some sort of purgatory, are you paying for sin. No, you're sharing in his sufferings because you're sharing in his story. You're sharing in his story. You're experiencing some, a little bit of what he experienced. This is what Paul says, Philippians 10, uh, 3, 10 through 11. Listen to his, his ambition in life. That I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why, why would you want to share in his sufferings? Why would you want to become like him in his death? Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to be resurrected, and what that means is I have to share in his humiliation. That's what he says in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Why do we rejoice? We're insulted for the name of Jesus because we're convinced knowing Jesus and his name is better than ourselves and our name. That's why we do it. Like, listen, I don't know how you think about the Christian faith or Christian life. The end of it is Jesus. He's the goal. You don't come to Christianity so Jesus can give you things. You come to Christianity so Jesus can give you himself. So he can give you God. Because what Christians have found to be true is, oh, when I get to know him, he is better than everything else. His name is better than mine. His glory is better than mine. And at last, all of, that I am after and all that I treasure. And so it's the extent and the depth to which he stooped to love us that motivates us to follow after him and his way of the cross that brings us low as well. That brings us low as well and we even rejoice in words of dishonor for his name because in the future we know we'll, we will hear words of honor and reward because of his name. We rejoice because as Christians we've said, I just think he's better. I think his word has proven true in the past and his word will prove true in the future. That's why we rejoice. We are sharing in his story. But how could you do that? Like I know that's the goal, but how do you do that? There is an incredible promise for you in verse 14 and for me. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are currently blessed. Not future, not you will be blessed, you are blessed in the moment because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. God's making you the promised Christian that when you receive insults for his name, he will be with you in a special way. That's what he said. He's saying that the spirit of glory and of God, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit that you have from the beginning of your faith, who gave you faith, he's saying that when you're insulted, he's gonna be with you in a special 
way. He's gonna rest upon you and give you assurance. He's gonna be with you to comfort you and encourage you and to give you peace, to give you kindness and the ability to be bold and loving at the exact same time, to be steadfast in the face of great opposition. I don't know about you, but I think about the ways sometimes Christians are shamed. And I genuinely wonder, will I be able to be steadfast and not crushed by being insulted for that? I don't know if you've ever ever read stories of Christians all over the world who get tortured or martyred and you read about it and you think, could I possibly ever be faithful in the midst of that? Because I know myself, I know how quick I want to run, I know how quickly I want to go, maybe I don't really believe in this. And God has a promise to you, if you have fear about, can I stand in the midst of insults? Can I trust that the name he's given me is better than the name they're taking away? He says, I promise I will be with you in a special way when that moment comes. I promise. Like Paul, he says, when everyone deserted me, the Lord stood by me in a special way. When you're insulted for the name of Jesus right now, even the thought of it, don't be afraid because he'll be with you uniquely when that moment comes. Church, I, I, I don't know what's going to come our way in the coming years. I'm not sure if, it's, if faithfulness to Jesus is gonna mean great victories or tough losses. It'll probably mean both. I don't know, but here's what I do know, is you should never let anyone, never let anyone, no matter how spiritual they claim to be, make you think that being insulted for the name of Christ is a sign that God has left us. Don't let anyone make you think that cultural influence is the way you determine if God is with us. That's not the way you determine it. Don't fall into a prosperity gospel that says true faith would never be mocked and true faith would never be marginalized. That's just not true. And remember, church, remember the way Jesus overcame his enemies and those who ridiculed him. How did he overcome them? Not through power, not through force, through love and through service. And speaking the truth and even when it cost him his life. That's how he overcame. You were his enemy. How did he overcome you? Through love and through service. He never abandoned the truth of God's word in his name, even when it cost him everything. And listen, what looked like, what looked like God forsaking him in that tomb as that stone was rolled over it, what looked like clearly God had forsaken him was actually God preparing to glorify him. And so when you see what looks like the loss of a name and loss of a reputation for the name of Jesus is really God preparing you to share in his honor and his glory and his praise at the name of Christ. The beginning of Peter's letter said this. He says, in this you rejoice Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials and insults so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes those tested by fire, listen, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You show off his glory when you're insulted, not by showing how strong and witty and clever and powerful you are. You show off his glory by showing how happy you are that you could share in his name and the dishonor that comes with it in this life. Let's win over people through love and service and humility 
and trust that God has given you a name that nobody can take away. Let's pray together. Father, we are a people so often characterized by fear. And God, it is our fear that prompts us to wail. It's our fear that prompts us to curse. It's our fear that prompts us to lash out and to cower. And God, if we've learned anything from your word and from your promises in Jesus, we don't have to fear. We don't have to wonder how things will go for us. We don't have to wonder if we'll have a name, if we'll have a future, if we have a hope. Jesus, you got up from the grave to teach us the way of God and God, the way following you sometimes costs. And it means losing. Sometimes, God, it will mean being misunderstood by those we're trying to help. So God, would you make us a church and make us a people who strive to make sure that every place we fail and every place we get in the way of you, who you are and what you're like, that we own up to that, that as the church we would own up to every failing and every error that we make. That we never be defensive and think that somehow we have to be perfect in order for God to be seen. God, that's impossible. But God, also help us be people that we don't edit you. We don't whitewash you. Jesus, we don't mute you, but we listen and we proclaim and we live out and we obey because Jesus, you know where life is. Jesus, you are our king and you lead us to green pastures and calm waters and you also lead us in the valley of the shadow of death. And in every one of those moments, Jesus, you are our shepherd. So God, give us faith to trust you that if we are more blessed to share in humiliation and dishonor in this life, God, if it means being with you in the next. That even now you'll be with us in a special way as we love those who chastise us and we serve them and forgive them and we follow you, Jesus. We pray for our enemies as they crucify us. God, help us be a faithful witness to this city because we love them. And we love you. Blessed are you when you are reviled for the name of Christ. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's sing together.